This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Amen. Okay. Um, if you don't have a Bible, grab a Bible. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is about two-thirds through the entire Bible. It's what's one of the four Gospels. Um, I'm going to start with a story. Many, many years ago, I was on a family vacation with another uh, dear family friends. And we were on a little lake. So I was actually doing uh, fishing pole duty. So I had about, I don't know, three or four toddlers between our two families. And they were all stretched out on the dock. And, and the moment when this incident occurred, I was actually trying to put an earthworm on the hook of, I think it was a Spider-Man fishing pole. And while I was in the middle of that, I all of a sudden heard um, out on the lake, help, <laughs> help, help. And so I, I looked up and I kind of turned to where the voice was coming from. And sure enough, out pretty far on the lake in a canoe was my seven-year-old son and my, I think, like 11-year-old godson. And somehow or another, an imperceptible current had kind of pulled them away, and they had drifted away from the dock over the course of the like, last 15, 20 minutes, and they were out on the lake. Now, they weren't in terrible danger, but they were shaken, and they were yelling for help as loud as they could. So as I was trying to figure out what to do with the toddlers who were in my charge, um, the other dad actually saw them. He went flying into the water, swam out there, and pulled them back into the dock. Had he not done that, though, there was no getting back in for these two boys. That current, that drift, had taken them far from the dock. It happened so quickly. It happened very quietly. I wasn't even aware of the currents that were pulling them out from where we were. And that image of drifting, of an imperceptible current that causes a drift, is actually an image I think helps us understand this very beautiful story. If you're, if you're familiar with the Bible, you probably know this story. I'm assuming many of you are not familiar with the Bible that are listening and watching right now. What's called the Emmaus Road story, the Emmaus Road incident. And this is actually a story of drift, of two who are drifting away. Now, at first reading, if, as you heard this story read by Deacon Margie, the story can seem almost quaint. Two friends, they're going to a village. It has a kind of sweet name, Emmaus. They're chatting away when they meet a stranger who turns out to be, oh, the resurrected Jesus. Cute, quaint, surprising. Maybe almost kind of a children's story. I don't think that's the story at all. Indeed, as I study this account more closely, I think it's more desperate than quaint. I actually think it's a story that has more to do with despair, imperceptible despair often, with unbelief, with incredible fear, than something droll or cute. As a matter of fact, we see these two followers of Jesus they're drifting away from Jerusalem. That's significant. Jerusalem is the center where the acts of Jesus have happened. His crucifixion has happened. His resurrection has happened in Jerusalem. It is the spiritual center for who these men are as Jews. It, it is a critical place, and they're actually going away from there. We find them actually on Easter afternoon. So the resurrection has occurred in the morning. 
we'll find and we'll study this, they don't yet believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. They haven't seen Jesus yet, although people have found an empty tomb. So this is a time of confusion. It's a time of lack of clarity. They're trying to figure out how do we put these facts together with what Jesus had told us that he would rise on the third day. We, we don't know what's happening. We're in a kind of drift. And for some reason, not told to us, they are actually leaving the center of all things where if they knew what had happened, if they believed that Jesus had been risen from the dead, they would never leave Jerusalem. They would indeed attach themselves to that place, but instead, they're just drifting, and there's currents that are kind of pulling them away. This is the story of quiet desperation. But thank God the story does not end there. It's actually going to end with a hero. With a hero who brings the power of hope. As we look at this story, I'm going to look at the drift of despair. And we kind of break down this, this story into verses 13 to 26, where we see how despair brings a drift, a drifting away from the things that matter most. Indeed, a drifting away from Jesus himself. Now we look at the hero of hope, verses 27 to 35. The drift of despair. Verse 13 here. That very day, which would be Easter day as we would call it, the day that Jesus has risen from the dead, that very day, two of them were going to a village. The two of them are likely part of a larger group. And if you have your Bible, you'll see in verses, verse 11 that what's happened just prior to this is there were women. They've gone to the tomb where Jesus was buried. The tomb is empty. They're reflecting on this. They've met two angelic beings. They run to tell the apostles, the main band of Jesus. And the apostles hear these words of the women. And in verse 11, Luke tells us, these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. Now, these women are not strangers to the apostolic band. They've been traveling together for at least three years. Some of them were family. Some of them knew each other for a very long time. For them to disbelieve women who had every reason to be trusted tells you how profoundly what they were trying to share was incomprehensible to these apostles, even though they've been taught by the Lord himself that he would rise on the third day. They must have thought that metaphorical. They, they must have thought it political. They must have thought it some kind of military image, perhaps. But they did not believe what even those that they had come to love and trust have told them. Indeed, they find it an idle tale. It seemed to them, and then we hear the same language being used, two of them that were there at that point. We don't know exactly who these men are. Cleopas is a name that may have a, a connection with another name in the New Testament. We're not sure. Uh, Eusebius, a church historian of the early, early church. The tradition then, and I think it's just helpful to kind of enliven our imaginations, it may or may not be true, is that Cleopas was Jesus' uncle. He was part of Jesus' family that the other person with Cleopas is Cleopas's son, who'd be Jesus's cousin, and that the son was a man named Simeon, who went on to become the second bishop of Jerusalem. We're not sure about that fact, but we can be sure. And what this legend helps us connect with is, these were men who knew Jesus, and Jesus knew them. They were very connected. Indeed, they had traveled with Jesus. They had learned from Jesus. If they had had awards like this and ancient Near Eastern high schools, they would have likely been most likely not to drift, most likely not to find, fall away from what they had been taught about Jesus. So what current is pushing them 
away from the empty tomb. We see two currents, two currents of despair. One is unbelief, and one is actually idealism. Let me talk about unbelief first. We see that unbelief is actually a form of despair. So when I say the word despair, you may be thinking, I'm not despairing. I'm okay. I'm struggling with some things. But despair seems like it's in kind of ultimate position. But despair is often quieter. It's often more subtle. And unbelief is actually a profound form of despair. We read in verse 17 that they're looking sad. The English translation there is actually not helpful for us. It doesn't give us the full import of what's happening at this point. We're here looking sad, and we think sad emoji. <laughs> looking sad. But we actually know that they're in the crisis of their lives. That all that they have banked their lives on, the coming of a Savior, what they would have called a Messiah, a Christ, all their hope for the future of their beloved Israel, all those hopes have been utterly and completely obliterated. They're all gone. The images that they carried in their imagination for the last three years, following the rabbi Jesus, the great man Jesus, the one who they dared to believe was the Messiah that they've been waiting for and that their people have been waiting for their entire lives. All the images of the future that they carried to the Messiah, the future is now gone. The future is a nothingness. There's nothing anymore to hope for. Indeed, they say, we had hoped, verse 21. We had hoped. Our hopes for the future are gone. Now, to help you connect with this macro reality, perhaps you have micro realities in your own life of hopes that you had. You had hoped for an incredible commencement as you finish your high school career. You had hoped for an incredibly sweet last weeks with your college friends as you finished as a senior. You had hoped for the money that you set aside over the last 10 years, carefully saving, could be used toward other purposes than just paying your rent and paying your mortgage, and caring for your family. You've had so many hopes in the last six weeks, it's like they're obliterated. It's like how you thought about the future, like how these men and women have thought about the future, it's like, now what is the future? And that's a kind of despair. Now, it's not that these men in this story have all of a sudden become atheists. They don't believe in God at all, or even agnostics. They become heartbroken because it appears to them with the information that they have and the way that they're perceiving the information that Jesus has not done what he said. He said he would rise on the third day. And they say in verse 21, and besides all of this, on top of all of this, our, our Messiah is dead. Our leaders were the ones who killed him. On top of all of this, they say, He said he would come on the third day, and it is now the third day since these things have happened. This is the ultimate moment of unbelief. And they seem so justified in their skepticism. Indeed, there's a wonderful narrative kind of twist here. The traveler, the Lord Jesus, needs to be informed by them what's happened. They're men of information. They, they've read the most recent social media piece, they're that person, you know, with, within the COVID crisis that always knows more than anybody else and they always have the inside track or they know somebody that knows somebody. They're, those, they're, they're that person. Let me tell you what's really happening. Let me tell you what, what the governor's actually going to say. They've got it. They've got information. And they're informing Jesus. They're confident in what they know. And they need to help this ignorant traveler. 
Unbelief often starts when we, when we develop a perception that somehow or another God has broken a promise to us. Unbelief begins when we've interpreted a promise from God in a certain way. And it appears to us with all rational analysis that God has broken his promise. He promised he would rise again on the third day. Here it is the third day and he's not risen. They say to the risen Jesus who has indeed risen, who has indeed fulfilled his promise. Where are you, risen Jesus, they're saying. And yet we know, as the listener, as the reader, verse 15, one of the most important phrases in the entire story, Jesus himself drew near. He had not broken his promise. We must be wary of our own perceptions of the promises of God. We must be wary of our own experiences of how we understand the promise of God. We must be humble in knowing that God is accomplishing his promises through the resurrected Jesus, even in ways that we cannot see or know. Or we dare may treat Jesus like one who has to be informed of the details that he doesn't seem to understand. I lived four years of unbelief from the ages of 20 to 24. I've been reflecting on those years recently. And they started because I prayed and asked God that my parents would not divorce. But after several years of trying very hard to stay married, they did divorce. In the light of that, my life with Jesus became muddled, and I, I started to believe that Jesus had removed himself from me. My parents' marriage was gone, but I somehow equated that Jesus' presence in my life was also gone. And a vicious cycle of unbelief began in my life. I did not believe he was close, so I felt that he was far, which reinforced my sense that he was far, which actually reinforced my drifting away from him. And the only way is I drifted farther and farther and farther away and became more and more incapable of getting myself back to my place of belief is that somebody somehow would have to come out and get me amidst the current of unbelief that was pushing me far. Have you lost hope in the promises of God? Start honestly with that question. Is there some way in which you thought God was going to do something or promise something to you? or promise something for your future. And because it hasn't happened as you had hoped it would happen, a drift, a despair has happened. The despair coin within this account really has two sides to it. One side is unbelief, but there's another side that's actually related to unbelief, and it may not seem so at first, of idealism. In unbelief, there's a loss of hope for God's presence now. A loss of hope that God is actually present, walking with us as Jesus was with them. But in idealism, which we also see these travelers caught up in, in idealism is a loss of hope for God's power into the future. Indeed, they say, and this is more subtle than the unbelief, but I believe it's here in our text. Verse 21, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. There was a kind of messianic utopia not fueled by the Hebrew Scriptures, by the Old Testament Scriptures as we would call them, but fueled by teachings around the Hebrew Scriptures 
that was properly believed wherein a military and political messiah would come in, overthrow whatever occupying force was occupying Israel, and there were many over the centuries, in this case it was Rome, and would establish Israel. And that messianic utopia, that kind of idealized world of what our life would be like, was then all put on Jesus as he clarified his calling as the Messiah, as the Son of God. Now Jesus confronts this utopic vision. He confronts this idealism. And he confronted it throughout his ministry. He made very clear the kind of Messiah, the kind of biblical Messiah that he was. And he confronts it again in verse 26 when he's teaching them. They don't yet know it's Jesus. And he says, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Do you not understand my vision? Do you not understand what I have come to establish in Israel? Do you not understand the kind of heroism, the kind of hope that I'm bringing? As believers in Jesus and in his kingdom, We are not looking forward to some kind of idealized utopia that will be brought about by a human hero or a human power or a human ingenuity. We are looking to a kingdom that will be ruled by a hero with wounds in his hands. No idealism. Indeed, a crucified, resurrected Jesus. We as Americans, caught up right now in the great fear of COVID-19, the great fear that all of the reality of COVID-19 is creating around security and identity and who we even are as Americans, the country that's always seemed to overcome, the country that's always seemed invulnerable when other countries are vulnerable. We as Americans can be very vulnerable right now. We can be very vulnerable to men and women in power who promise that with this medical advance or this medical technology or with these stimulus checks that are just showing up in our bank accounts, that somehow they will secure our future for us. There's some idealized future on the other side of this where never again, because we'll be so prepared and so ready, never again will a pandemic hit us. Do not believe it in the name of Jesus. Do not trust in the idealism of any man or woman, of any person in power. There is no utopia ahead of us. That's despair to believe so. That's unbelief to believe so. Jesus has secured our future. Family of God, there will be more viruses. There will be more economic downturns. Our hope cannot be in rich, smart, powerful people rescuing us. They cannot. And any hope in them will be dangerous. The history of the 20th century proves the danger of utopian vision. But we need a hero. We need a hand-pierced hero. One who suffers to save us. One who enters into our lives in a way that those who make so many promises and yet live so removed from actual life cannot. The hero of our hope, Jesus himself, Jesus himself, verse 15, drew near. Look at our Lord's love for them. Now, he will confront them. He will call them foolish ones. But look at his kindness as well. Look how they're drifting away They're drifting away from Jesus. They're drifting away from the resurrection. They're drifting away from his promises and his teachings. And he steps into their drift. He doesn't drift himself. But he's living out a parable that he taught. That the shepherd would leave the 99 and go for the one lost sheep because he loves that lost sheep so much. He would go and find him. He's living out the very parable he told them during his ministry. 
And he comes into their journey of drifting, their journey of unbelief. He asks them questions like a loving father. What are you talking about? What is this conversation? What things, he says. And while they don't even recognize him yet, they know this is one who loves them. They know this is one who they just want to be around. That's so much of who Jesus is. As you come to know him, you just want to be around him. So they say, stay with us. Another translation puts it, abide with us. Stay with us in our despair, they say. Stay with us in our unbelief. I want to say a little bit more about how Jesus brings hope. But before I do, some of you might in the Bible right now just make their request to prayer. Jesus, I've been saying it all week. I just need to say it again. Stay with me. Or I used to say it many years ago, but I haven't really prayed it with sincerity for a long time. Jesus, Stay with me. Hand pierced hero, come, come to me. I, I don't want to unbelieve. I, I don't want to put all my hopes for the future in an idealistic vision. Jesus, stay with me. Some of you have never prayed the name of Jesus. Some of you have never prayed, Jesus, stay with me. You don't fully understand everything about Jesus yet. They didn't either. They didn't even fully know it was Jesus. But you can pray, stay with me. Come to me. So they drew near to the village. Verse 28, which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. We could only believe that our Lord was going to go on. He had taught them from the scriptures. He had given them and opened the word to them. But it was their will that engaged to say, stay with me. As I've often taught, God does everything. We do something. And this something was an invitation to our Lord. And then we see that as he stays with them, he gives them two hopes. The hope of the scriptures and the hope of the Eucharist. These hopes are so central to the life of the follower of Jesus that our Lord's Day, our Sunday services are completely designed that every week we receive these hopes in our services. They're called the two mountain peaks of the Sunday service. The scriptures, which are happening right now, and then the Eucharist, which will happen in just a few moments. First we read that even before that they've urged him to stay, he is connected with them through the Bible. The scriptures connect us to God, even if we don't know God yet. calls them foolish ones, which really means less you're a moron and more you don't see. So, oh, blind ones, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken and all the scriptures have given us. That's what he's referring to. He says the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer? And then beginning with Moses, verse 27, and all the prophets, which is to say all of the scriptures. That's a, a way of saying all of the Hebrew scriptures. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things 
concerning himself. Jesus is preaching to them about himself. The great early church thinker Augustine says, everything in the Hebrew Scriptures speaks of the Messiah, of the Christ. And indeed, we learn how to read the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures by interpreting them and understanding them with Jesus, the Word of God, at the center of them. And this is important for how we study the Bible. But also, we learn that the promises of God are not abstracted ideas or somehow proposals from God. But the promises of God to be understood in the person of Jesus Christ. That to be understood fully in His coming to us. In an engaged experience with Jesus Himself. He is the promise of God. He is the fully embodied, incarnate promise of God come to us. God does not break His promises. But even more powerfully than that, God enacts and lives out His promise in Jesus coming into our drift. Jesus coming into our unbelief and our idealism and meeting us there, fully present to us in the Word of God, in the Eucharist. That's how we can grasp and believe the promises of God. That's how we can trust in what He has given us. That's how we can come out of a confusion that I had where I did pray and that, that specific prayer was not answered. But the deeper yearning and longing of my heart to see Jesus himself was profoundly answered when indeed he came into my drift of unbelief and met me there and rescued me there and brought me to himself fully. And he opens the scriptures up. There's a great verb being used there. We see it in verse 32 that as they reflected on Jesus' teaching, now that they've had Jesus revealed to them, they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures? In the same chapter, here in verse 45, we also read that Jesus then opened their minds, verse 45 of chapter 24 of Luke, to understand the Scriptures. Indeed, what happens when we engage the Word of God in the Scriptures is we have an opening up. We move out of despair. We move out of a small, narrow place, and we're opened up to all the fullness of who God is. Do not think that the Scriptures will close you or make you more narrow. If you understand the Scriptures with Jesus at the center of them, the Messiah, who actually teaches us about himself in the scriptures, there is an opening and a creativity that is utterly and completely unleashed. I've been just reflecting on the miracle of the three great artists of the high renaissance. It occurred to me, and I was ignorant about this in art history, that the, some of the three of the greatest artists ever, Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, all lived around the same time. They overlapped some. Within the same period, within the same country in Italy, at the same time. And they had the same main subject matter to their works of utter genius, which was the Scriptures. It was the Scriptures that they found opened their minds and opened their hearts to do some of the greatest art known to the Western world. Far from cramping a Raphael, far from limiting a Michelangelo, the reality of the Bible and of the Word of God created works of genius for all of us to enjoy. How true that is in our own lives with the Scriptures. But not just the Scriptures that open us up. We also read of the opening that happened. When he takes bread, verse 30, he blesses it and breaks it and gives it to them. And verse 31, and their eyes were opened. What exactly is happening here? We're not sure exactly what's happening here, but here's what we can be sure of when Jesus does this. 
is that Luke uses the exact same phrase in this verse as he uses in Luke 22, verse 19, where Jesus institutes his Lord's Supper on the night of the Passover. And he says in Luke 22, verse 19, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. So there is some significant parallel to the Lord's Supper instituted just two days before this. And now Jesus resurrected, ministering to them. His Eucharist, his Lord's Supper, his revealing of himself and the breaking of bread and the phraseologies parallel there. And their eyes are opened and they see Jesus. And they realize he didn't break his promise. There's a greater future that the ideal utopia that we had come to accept around a messianic military ruler. It's actually much, much greater than we ever had thought. Let me finish with a testimony. It's not mine, but for Church of the Cross, it's the testimony of your pastor. I assume many of you know it, but I think it bears repeating. I had my own journey of unbelief, as did my brother. And that unbelief was met very powerfully in several ways, but in one particular way, around the receiving of Holy Communion, around the Eucharist. He was visiting Catherine and me for a weekend, and we brought him to church here at Church of the Resurrection. He was beginning to turn his heart and his mind toward the Scriptures and toward Jesus, who he had known in his youth and was considering what it would mean to return to the power of God. Because he had sought God and was, and was returning and been baptized, he came down for Holy Communion, and he received Holy Communion. He went back and he sat in his chair and I noticed as he was praying that he was crying. And I was struck by that. I went up to him and just, I just prayed for him and the words came, you're safe. Later over lunch, he told me, right when I received the Eucharist, I remembered a dream that I'd had the very night before. And I won't give all the details of the dream, they're really his to share. But in the dream, it had become clear that he had involved himself in his years of unbelief in sort of a, a reality that was far from God and in a grouping of people that were far from God. And he hadn't understood just how dangerous that had been spiritually. He hadn't understood the drift that had happened in his life on unbelief and from unbelief until he took Holy Communion and he remembered the dream the Lord had given him and his eyes were opened to the resurrected Jesus. Maybe your drift is two or three days or drift under the pressures of what we're living under or for reasons unrelated to COVID. Maybe your drift is several years. Jesus himself is here. He's with you wherever you are right now. And you can pray Jesus, stay with me. Jesus, come to me. Jesus, I invite you into my heart and into my life. I repent of unbelief. I repent of idealism or being influenced by others' idealism. I want your vision. I want your scriptures. I want your presence. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. 
Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As a part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.